better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds this, to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Shelby. I had originally included these verses in last week's sermon, last together with last week's text, and decided to split it out. So hopefully we can uh, dive into a little of the wackiness that you just heard. Um, so uh, let's let's pray, and then we'll get into First Peter chapter three. Father, we thank you for this uh, this day, a beautiful day that you have made. Let us uh, rejoice in it and be glad. We thank you for the salvation of Christ. We thank you for uh, Advent, time to wait, time to prepare, time to be reminded uh, in our hearts and in our minds. So we pray that uh, you would be present with us, open, our, open the eyes of our heart and of our mind, and draw us to the beauty of Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Um, I th- is that a Chris Tomlin song, Lem? Did he slip out? Yeah, and that's a great, it's a really great song to kind of move into this text, um, and we'll see why in a minute, but there's a lot of what's going on in the verses of that, which are mirrored here in our text. Um, and as I, as I kind of walked through, studied this passage this week, there's, there's some things that keep theologians very busy in this, these few verses, which is fun. Um, we're not going to, this isn't a, a, a seminary classroom, so we're not going to get into all of them. But as I kind of wrestled with some of the stuff that's going on in this text this week, there were two really helpful metaphors that I wanted to, to just share with you to kind of frame out this passage a little bit. And one of them has to do with how these verses relate to everything else that's going on. Um, and what, so the metaphor for that is that uh, if First Peter is a tree, you think of a, a tree, an oak tree with all kinds of branches and leaves, um, the stuff that we've been, the passages we've been looking at where it says be humble and have endurance and all these things, those are passages about the leaves of the tree. And these verses are about the roots of the tree. Okay, so in relationship to the other thing that's going, the other stuff that Peter's talking about, he kind of, we've seen a lot of commands and all of a sudden he's now talking about the roots of the tree, the thing, that are, the thing that's going to make the tree grow. So that's one metaphor. The other metaphor that was helpful for me is uh, the idea of a of a ship or a boat. If you think of a like a lifeboat, you know, I don't know how big how big is a lifeboat. Like just a, a small lifeboat, a few times si- the size of this table. And you go out in the ocean and you sit in that lifeboat, and you you can't see land. Has anybody ever been on a boat? Not a cruise ship. Like a cruise ship is like a moving island. Uh, have you been out on a boat that's no that's no bigger than this room in the middle of the ocean where you can't see anything? Yes. You know that experience? It's a little bit of a... Jim, Jim was in the Navy, so yes, yes for Jim. Um, it's bigger than this room, your, your ships, your boats. 
Um, but if you go out on a little boat in the middle of the ocean, can you imagine how that would feel? You're kind of floating along. You don't really know where you're, where you're going to go. Um, and you're being blown by the wind. And if I gave you a paddle and said, get back to land, uh, think about how exhausted you would feel, how overwhelmed you would feel. And that metaphor, I think, describes uh, very well a lot of the way that we tend to feel in our lives. You feel like you're in a boat, you're in the middle of the ocean, and you're like, you have a paddle, maybe you have two, maybe you're lucky and you have a rowboat and you have like two rows and you're kind of going in a direction. And if you don't feel like that, a lot of people around you feel like that. Like we go out into the world and the the world is a very sort of unrooted, um, aimless, restless, there's a lot of restlessness in the world, okay? All I have to tell you is that Kanye is a Christian and you know it's a restless world, Right? Somebody the other night, I think, I forget if it was at a meeting or whatever, but somebody said, like, a world where Connie is a Christian and Taylor Swift's songs are full of hate, like, this is, this is a messed up world. Like, it's, people change their beliefs, change their mind, change their ideas, change their thoughts all the time, and we're just sort of drifting in the middle of the ocean. Um, and so, as, I want you to think about that metaphor as we go through this passage, because today, the, the big idea of what I'm trying to say, or what I think Peter is trying to say in this text, when it, when it comes to being faithfully present in the world, is that a life of faithful presence is a life of rooted faith. A life of faithful presence in the world, to be faithful in the world requires rooted faith, right? If we're going to be faithful, we have to have faith. Now, when you think of the word faith, most of us run to this idea of believing. That, we, that, that when you hear that, the idea of having faith, that it makes us think of, we just need to believe really hard, we like need to try really hard to believe really strongly in something. And that's not really what I think Peter means when he talks about faith and when we, what we'll see in these verses. And it, it looks more like, if you know this, this verse from Jude chapter 1, Jude says this. Uh, he writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. That was once for all delivered to the saints. It's what I like to call capital T, capital F, the faith. Now, little, little F faith is something we have. We believe in something. We have faith in it. But the faith is a bigger concept. It's a bigger idea. And it's what these verses are all about. So I want to give you three aspects tonight of the faith, capital T, capital F, that Peter is talking about. What does rooted faith look like, capital T, capital F, and how does it help us be fruitful and faithful as we live our life in the world. So three things. I haven't, I haven't had like a normal three-point sermon in a while, so I figured this was a good week for it. So point number one, a rooted faith, according to Peter, Peter is a, and I'm going to use this word and explain it, is a creedal faith. A rooted faith is a creedal faith. All right, every week here, and we'll do it in a few minutes, we say one of two creeds, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And if, if you have been here for a while and you've heard us say those words, you'll notice that this passage actually sounds a lot like that. It sounds a lot like the creed. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, verse 18, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might, might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It's echoing these lines in the creed. And then he has kind of a little excursus. And then the last two verses says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. It sounds very much like the creed that we say every week. And so he's talking about faithful presence, and he's saying, do this and be this and think about this. And then he kind of stops, and he says, Let, let's get back to the basics. Let's get back to the things that root us into the ground. 
right? A creed, this is uh, one of Lemonai's favorite writers is Winfield Bevins, and he just defines a creed as a clearly defined and concise proclamation of what the church believes. It comes from the word, the Latin word credo, which means I believe. That's why we say at the beginning of the Nicene Creed, we say I believe, or at the beginning of the Apostles' Creed, we say I believe. At the beginning of the Nicene Creed, we say we believe. And it's a, it's a concise summary and a proclamation of what we believe. Lots of people believe in God. This statement, what Peter's saying and what we say in the creed every week is telling us what kind of God. Who, who, which God? Who God, right? That God is Jesus. That's why Chris Tomlin's song is so good. The, the chorus, we believe our God is Jesus. It's a very important statement for our faith. These, these kind of statements are actually all over the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most famous where Paul says, I, I gave to you what was, what was first delivered to me. And then he kind of gives some creedal statements. First, or John chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's a lot of kind of places where we see these kind of creedal summary statements of what Christians believe. Um, and if the Bible is a story, then the creed can sort of be like the, you know, the summary statement at the beginning, the cliff notes. This is what this story is about, right? Like, so if you're going to tell me about Lord of the Rings, I don't need to watch all 37 and a half hours of the Lord of the Rings movies. I can have you tell me, here's the main points of the story. Here's what, these things are true. And if you're not, if you don't understand these things, you're not watching Lord of the Rings, right? If, if like, Bilbo's the one that throws the ring into the fire. You're not watching Lord of the Rings. You're watching something else. You understand that? Like the, the most basic summary statements, these are the things that matter for this story to be what it is. Creed is a summary of true doctrine. Here's why this is important, I think, for Peter. Is it a creedal faith? If we're going to have a faith that is rooted, it has to be creedal because it needs to be outside of us. Something external that, that doesn't move. Like, a, you see that commercial recently uh, where the, the guy, I forget what he's doing, but he turns around and his dog, like, is jumping up onto the, the hot air balloon that's tethered to the ground. You ever seen this commercial? No? Or he looks around and he freaks out because his dog is, like, on this tether and, like, rising into the ground. But the tether is connected to the ground so the balloon doesn't go anywhere. All right? This, the idea of being tethered to something external that doesn't move, anchored. Or you drop an anchor down, it hits the bottom, your ship doesn't move. The idea that if we're going to have a, a faith that impacts people, a faith that's real, it has to be tethered to something true, something real, something external to us, something that we can be certain of. I mean, you know, you and I know, this is my, this is Connie and Taylor Swift. Things that we believe change all the time. What I, what I like to eat, what I, where I like to go, who I like to be with, it changes all the time. <laughs> if we're going to be rooted, if we're going to have faithful presence, we have to be connected to something that is outside of us and doesn't move. Like a faith, a Christian faith that's not creedal, connected to these objective truths, is like, you know, it's like water skiing without a rope. Like, you'll stay up for a little while, but eventually you're going to fall because you're, there's nothing to drive you. You need something true, external from you to drive you. Where it's like a, um, I haven't read one in a long time, but I remember loving them when I was in like third grade, and you go to the library and you get to choose your own adventure book. Somehow those books always end up with you dying, right? You get to page like 47, and it's like, oh, sorry, you fell off the cliff. Go back to page 37 and try again. And you go back and then you choose. And like, th- that's sometimes what we feel like life is just this like choose your own adventure book rather than being tethered to something that we know is true. We know and we and the people around us, the people in our lives, the people in our culture, are, we're like, we're restless, we're aimless. It's like we're, you know, you know what it feels like to live paycheck to paycheck. We're doing that spiritually all the time. 
just like hoping that the next thing we find out is true or hoping that the next thing we find out isn't untrue. We need something that's concrete, that's real, that's objective. And that's why Peter goes back to this. If we're going to communicate faith into the world, if we're going to have faith, we need to be rooted in something that's true. Yeah, a personal story with this. Uh, most of you know, or many of you know, that um, maybe six years ago, Kristen, uh, we were traveling. We were up in Pennsylvania, and Kristen has some, um, some kind of brain or head pain, and we go, to the, we go to the hospital, and it turns out she has, like, this plum-sized cyst in the back of her head, and she needs surgery, like, tomorrow. Um, so we had checked into the hospital, and my sister happened to live nearby, so I went back after that, um, uh, just, like, shocked. Like, we go in to just get checked out at the urgent care, and we get checked into the hospital to have brain surgery tomorrow. And you're like, right, that's what people say when they're trying to, to calm you down, is like, hey, at least it's not brain surgery. It's like, well, it actually is brain surgery. So, like, you can freak out now. Um, and I just remember um, I went home from the hospital that night, and I went back to my sister's, and she lived on this second-floor apartment in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So you can see out, and it just, there's lots of fields, and it's gorgeous, and it smells like bad things. And I'm standing up on the second floor, um, and it's like 11 o'clock at night. And literally, and I didn't grow up in a liturgical church that said the creed every week, but I listened to Rich Mullins. You know Rich Mullins' song, Creed? And I literally stood on this deck, and for the first time in my life, that was like kind of the biggest crisis I had faced in my life to that point. And literally the only thing I could do was say the creed. That's the only thing I could do. And I started at the top. <laughs> I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And I just went over and over and over, because that's all I knew. Right? That's tethered to something true. Like it, I, don't, I might not feel like it's true. I might not know it's true. I'm not sure what I believe right now, but I'm... I'm I'm holding on to this thing that's, that's a rock. That's the, that's the picture that Peter is bringing into our minds when he goes back to these kind of concise statements. So if we're going to have faithful presence in the world, we have to have a rooted faith, and that faith needs to be creedal, connected to something true and objective. Um, that's why we say it every week in worship. There's a, um, one of the things I read this week, this is a, such a good summary of how this works. He says, I don't always believe the words of the creed, but I say them anyway. Sometimes they're more of a confession of a desire than conviction, a statement of what I desperately long to be true. Right? There's, you, we don't come in here just expressing our faith. Sometimes we come in here with hardly any faith at all. <laughs> and it's hearing behind me Ron say the creed to me that re-encourages and reinvigorates the fact that what, what these summary statements of the world are true. We believe our God is Jesus. It's objectively true outside of us. So that's point number one. We need a faith, and that's why Peter goes back to these basic statement truths about Jesus and the story. These things are true. You need these things. But there, it's not enough that we just believe in a set of ex- external things that are true. Right? You know, we know a lot of people, you probably know them, that have said the creed their entire life and don't believe it's true. Like they say them, they might even come into church and say them, but it doesn't affect how they live. It, we need something more than just the external truths. And that's point number two, and that is that a rooted faith is, is a creedal faith, it's also a historical faith. And I want you to see how Peter does this because it's super, it's super interesting um, in the text. And it's not clear when you first read it, but... I think we can get, get somewhere here. So he says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, verse 19, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, 
because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And you read that and you're like, is this an episode of Stranger Things or is this the Bible? Right? Like, it's just a little bit weird. There's, Martin Luther said that this is one of the most confusing verses for him in the entire New Testament. It's, 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 a, it's interesting and weird. And so there's questions like, well, what, when, when, it, when did this happen? Whatever he's saying Jesus did, when did it happen and where? Where did it happen? And who, is he, who are spirits in prison and who is, he, who is he preaching to? And the sentence turns on this little phrase, in which. You see it? It's like halfway down, right? Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which. A lot of people have interpreted this to, be, to mean that it's talking about what Jesus did after he died and where he went after he died. I don't think that the verse is really saying anything about that at all. He says in verse 19, in which. What does he mean, in which? In which refers to spirit. Right? So it says Jesus, he was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. In the spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Made alive in the Holy Spirit. And then he says... In which, what he's doing is he's clarifying something about the Spirit. He's talking about Jesus and the Spirit. And then he says that he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So I want to retranslate this in a way that I think will be more helpful. I could go through all the nitty-gritty, but I just want to say it again with a little bit of clarity, moving the words around a little bit that that will help us. So this is what I think he means. In the days of Noah, Jesus went in the Spirit... And preach to people who are now spirits in prison because they didn't obey. So during the days of Noah, and we know this, P- Peter has some weird obsession with Noah because in Second Peter, he refers again to Noah and he says this, If God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald or preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So again, he's talking about the time of Noah. This time he calls Noah the preacher. But here what he's saying is that Jesus was present in the days of Noah and he was preaching a way of salvation through Noah to the people. And those people, when offered a gift of salvation, offered a way to be saved, which was the ark, and God was waiting patiently saying, hey, there's a way of salvation here. Come and be saved. Those people did not obey. And now those people are in prison because they did not obey. And Jesus did all of that in the spirit. The Spirit is connecting what Jesus did on the cross and what was happening in Noah's day. So, okay, what is he, why is he bringing this up? He's bringing this up because he's talking about Jesus as a way of salvation. Jesus died and was raised in order to bring us to God. Here's your way of salvation. I'm preaching that to you now. Receive this way of salvation. And he's saying that what is happening here with Jesus and our way of salvation was also happening in the time of Noah. He's connecting what happened in Noah's day to what's happening in our day. And he's saying what happened in Noah's day, that was a parable. That was a parable about there's one way to be saved. And when you hear preaching about repentance and coming to believe that way of salvation, if you do not respond, there will be punishment. And he makes that really, really clear in 2 Peter. And he also, we'll see again next next week, he's going to talk a lot about punishment for wickedness. He's comparing, he's comparing and drawing a link between what happened in Noah's day and what happened in our day. Why is this important? 
It's important because these truths about Jesus, these creedal truths about Jesus, they don't stand in isolation. It's not like you put them in a museum and you put them behind the, you know, the little laser sensors and nobody can touch them. And you're just like, wow, that stuff over there is true. He's saying that stuff is true and that stuff is what the entire story is about. In fact, way back in Noah's day, when there was a way of salvation, Jesus was even there. Jesus was even there. And rejecting that salvation leads to being in prison. You see how he's saying that? He's connecting everything that's happening in the entire world to Jesus. Right? Mike and I love the Gospel Project. It's this, uh, they, they make resources, videos, podcasts, and their slogan, I've been listening to one of their podcasts, so I keep hearing this over and over because they say it a thousand times. Every podcast says, we believe that the Bible is a unified story leading to Jesus. We believe that the Bible is a unified story leading to Jesus. That Noah is a story about Jesus. It's a story about Jesus. It's a story about how salvation works. That it explains, these, these creedal truths explain everything that's going on in the world. In the same way that salvation was offered then, salvation is offered now. There's a way to be saved. That, that what this means for us with rooted faith, with historically rooted faith, is that our faith, even these creedal truths, is not about us getting some sort of spiritual fulfillment or you know, personal happiness in our life. Rather, it's a, it's a way to understand the entire fabric of reality, why the universe is here, where we've come from, and where, we've, where we're going. It's like I think of if you go back to our little sea metaphor, right? If the, if the creed is the North Star, then the, the Bible is like the travel log, right? You see the difference? Like the North Star's there. It tells you where you're going. It, it, it doesn't change. It's the objective truth outside of you. And this is kind of how that objective truth has played itself out in the world. And every single story in here and every single story in our own lives is actually about Jesus, that if we're going to have a, a, a rooted faith that matters in the world, we're going to need to understand how these objective truths actually change the way that we see every single story. Our own stories, the story of the Bible. I remember I was sitting with um, a friend of mine one time, and he was studying some Old Testament. He was in seminary at the time, and he was studying. I forget what he was studying, but he's like, hey. And he, and he like connects. He's like, this word means this in First in Samuel. And we see it here in Psalms, and we see it in Genesis, and it's here, and it's here. And I remember this feeling. Him, like He was putting it on me. He was like, this is amazing. When you start to realize the way that the world is connected, what God is doing with this story, it is amazing. It will blow your mind. It is, it is crazy. We need to have a wonder at the way that God is writing history. And I really think that's what, that's what Peter is doing here in these verses. He's connecting the creedal truths about Jesus to the story that people know, the, the historical story, and saying this is the way that the, the story of Jesus affects everything, that there's connections all over the place. Look and you'll find. So do, do you use the creed, the basic truths of Christianity, to interpret your own life? It's a good question. You have to go think about that. <laughs> when, we, when, when you think about current events, when you think about history, do you see Jesus in them? Right? We have a lot of current events. You can go on any news site and read all kinds of stuff about wars and rumors of wars, about impeachments and rumors of impeachments, about people switching political parties. There's all kinds of things going on. Do you see in and behind that and around that stories of Jesus working redemption in the world? If we're going to have a faith that matters in the world, we have to understand how the creed, the creedal truths about Jesus impact and interpret everything else.
Our faith to be rooted needs to be creedal and historical, and there's one more. Because he doesn't stop there. He says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. He saved eight people. Weird how he's oddly specific. He's kind of just dropping in his historical claim here of this is actually true. It actually happened. I'm even going to cite the number of people who were saved. Eight people were brought safely through water. Can you go to the next one? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stop. Okay. Don't let, don't, don't let this reference to baptism throw you off. Right? This is a super interesting. Most of us who are uh, if you've been baptized, if you know our theology of baptism, you would say, well, no, baptism doesn't save you. But it, he's actually not saying that at all. I want, you, I want you to see how he does that. Look really carefully at it. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this. What is this? We have two options. It's something that he already said. So he's either saying, he just said Noah and his family were saved through water. So he could be saying baptism corresponds to that which would make sense because there's water involved. And in the Old Testament, water is almost always a sign of like disorder and death and chaos. And so the idea of being saved through water is like the idea of being saved uh, from our sin through water. So that sort of makes sense. It could also be back up to the top where he's talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. So maybe he's saying that baptism corresponds to the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is appealing because the rest of the New Testament says that baptism corresponds to the death and resurrection of Christ. So which is it? Well, I want, I want to do a little uh, experiment here. We, you understand when we talk to one another and we, have, we put emphasis in a different place in the sentence, it changes the meaning of the sentence, or at least how you would understand the sentence. So if I said to you, sorry, this is the sentence I came up with this afternoon or yesterday, sorry. Lem drinks wine from the bottle. Okay, if I say that sentence to you and I say Lem drinks wine from the bottle, you'd be like, well, I expect that of Josh, but not from Lem. Right? You see that, like, I'm emphasizing Lem as opposed to somebody else. If I said to you, Lem drinks wine from the bottle, now I'm trying to get you to pay attention to the fact that it's wine and not grape juice that he's drinking from the bottle. Or if I say he drinks wine from the bottle, it's not the glass, but the bottle. You see, you know how, how emphasis changes the meaning of a sentence? So what is the emphasis of baptism which corresponds to this now saves you? When we read it, I think naturally we put the emphasis on the word saved, saves. Baptism now saves you. I don't think that's the emphasis at all. I think he's saying baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. He's connecting what Jesus has done and what history has done to you. The emphasis here is on the connection to personal faith in the realities of what Jesus has done in in history and in his life. Baptism now saves you. Okay, baptism corresponds to, and I think the answer is both. <laughs> baptism corresponds to the whole thing. Jesus' death, Noah's ark, your baptism. And here, baptism really corresponds as the word for sign and symbol. He's kind of using it as a shortcut to talk about faith in Jesus. And he clarifies by saying, not by the washing of water. Hey, it's not the water that saves you, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, which is a little shorthand way to say faith. Believing in the creedal truths of Christianity and the way that that has worked out in history is the way through the resurrection of Jesus that we receive the salvation of God. He's connecting what Jesus has done in his person and in history to us. 
if, if we're going to have a rooted faith, we need to have a personal faith. Creedal, historical, and personal. The last part of the passage is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God, which angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We are saved through the power of the resurrected Jesus who sits on the throne, ruling all things. He's done these things that we say in the creed. We see his fingerprints all over history, and now he sits in power, allowing us through his resurrection to be saved. Okay, when we talk about having rooted faith, it's not a call to like try harder to believe more. It's a call to see the beauty of what Jesus has done and receive that as salvation. Okay, this is so good. This is Tim Keller. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior. Tim Keller in his way with words. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. It's not about how much faith we have. Rooted faith doesn't mean that you can put your faith on the, you know, on the table and take it to the casino and play with it. No, it's not that. It's even little amounts of faith. The day that we walk in here and we feel like we're just this far away from snapping away, weak faith in a strong Jesus saves us. We need to be reminded of it every single day. I mean, the applications of this are across the board. Maybe it's for you and kind of your own existential Christian or non-Christian journey. Do you feel like you're on like a choose-your-own-adventure book where it just keeps ending in the wrong way and you're like going back? Like you need to, you need to see the, the, the truths of Jesus and apply them to your story. Weak fa- having weak faith is not our enemy. Having weak faith drives us back to the objective truths about Jesus. There's a, there's a million, if you go into Barnes & Noble, there's like a million um, Christian devotional books, 365 days with Tony Dungy and this. I mean, we're constantly like, you know, I talk to, I talk to people and we were just, everybody's like, oh, I got this new devotional book. I got this new devotional book. Try this, try this, try this. And we're all kind of like, what's the magic bullet that's going to make my devotional life amazing? I, I just want to challenge you maybe to, to try the creed. The creed is the summary of all the things that we believe. If you want to connect with Jesus, start with the creed one line at a time. It's the summary of the Bible. There's, it's been around forever. It's, a, it's an amazing, when we approach it devotionally rather than abstract truth, it draws us into the story of Jesus and helps us interpret everything else that happens in our lives. Don't underestimate being here with us every Sunday. Lem challenged you last week. I challenge us again. Like, be present here. We, I talked about this the very but the Sunday before we launched. Like, you can be present without being present. <laughs> be present and be aware of what we're doing and why we're here. When we sing these songs, when we say these words, when we when we approach the table, that in all of this is the this is the objective thing. It's the pointer to the objective realities of Jesus, and we need it so badly in order to not wander away. That's why we often feel like we're floating in the middle of the ocean. So faithful presence, living in the world, faithfully being in the world, but not of the world, requires a rooted faith. Creedal, objective, historical, meaning all the things in the world connected to Jesus, and personal. We need to reach out and grasp that by faith. It's the roots of the tree that will enable us to be fruitful. If we don't have this, we will have nothing. Our leaves will shrivel up and die. 
a friend of mine this week, I was working out this passage with him and he pointed me to this text by Piper and I just wanna close with this. John Piper says, what you and I need is not, is usually not a brand new teaching. Brand new truths are probably not truths. What we need are reminders about the greatness of the old truths. We need someone to say it, say an old truth in a fresh way or sometimes just to say it at all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great truths um, that have been handed down to us that um, men and women have fought and died <laughs> to preserve. We thank you that we receive them um, in your word and from those around us um, to call us back to the, uh, to the great realities of what you have done that you um, suffered once for all to bring us to God. We're thankful for that and we pray you'd open our eyes to how you're working around us in the world, um, how you're teaching us, um, that we would have faith in you, not faith in ourselves, not faith in our faith, but faith in the reality of what you've done. Encourage our hearts and teach us to, to trust. We pray that an act of trust would be a giving of ourselves, of our whole selves, and as we demonstrate that now in our offering, that you would um, remind our hearts of your ownership of all things, of your sovereignty over all things, um, and in giving that we would uh, be taught to trust in you. We pray it in your name, amen.